Well, good morning and welcome to you all. Welcome here to Peninsula Bible Church Cupertino as we gather as God's people to bring him our praise and worship and pray, pay attention to him. Well, as we uh, prepare to enter into worship, our call to worship is Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Well, let us pray. Oh God, our great God, uh, we come before you as your people to confess that you are our God. You have made us, you have formed us, you have shaped us to be who you are. You are the author of all life, the giver of life, and you also take life away. You are the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And uh, we give thanks for the life of Eliot. Thank you for your life in him, that you lived out in him, and you have taken him home to yourself. Uh, so we thank you for that gift of life. And as he enters into rest, may have heard that uh, um, call from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, we uh, pray that you would uh, be, indeed provide comfort for his family, for all those who knew him. We thank you that in the face of death, we do not grieve as those who are without hope, but that we indeed have hope, hope in the resurrection, uh, hope that what you did in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will do in us also, and uh, hope of life eternal in your presence, uh, the one who has made us for yourself. Father, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. You are the shepherd, the shepherd that David knew to be a good shepherd. And I pray for those who are weary, those who are, feel like lambs who have gone astray, feel like lambs who are lost, that you would find them, that you would comfort them, that you would restore their souls, that you would refresh them and bring them into um, your warm embrace and into your fold. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is indeed the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep. We thank you for his life lived and his life given, self-given for us, that we might be restored unto you. And uh, to indeed be your people, the flock of your pasture. Lord, you know where each of us is at, those who are encouraged, those who are discouraged, and I pray that this morning you would meet each of us and that uh, we would be reminded and encouraged of our standing before you as your beloved people in Christ Jesus through your spirit. Father, as we later come to the scriptures, I pray that you would give us listening ears, open eyes, open hearts to receive your word uh, and to see you as a good shepherd, to see the Lord Jesus as a good shepherd and to be confident that you are for us. Lord God, you are for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, you sent him into this world, a world full of darkness, to shine light into this world. And though the world preferred to live in darkness, 
you continue to shine that light, the light of the resurrection, the light of resurrection life that is available to all people who will identify with the Lord Jesus. And we pray that that light would expand as the gospel goes out, the good news of what you have done in Christ. Father, we thank you for the ongoing ministry of Christ interceding for us that we have one who is for us at your very right hand, who knows us, uh, knows our weakness, and is able to intercede with you, and you look upon him uh, with great mercy and compassion, look upon us with compassion. And we thank you for your spirit that intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray. So Father, we come to you as your sheep often your needy sheep, need of your succor, of your support, of your encouragement, of your refreshment. And pray this morning as we gather as your people that you would refresh us and we would go away from here knowing that we have met with you, our shepherd, uh, into whose care we have committed ourselves. So Father, we, uh, we stand before you as your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. I'm going to do something this morning which is, strictly speaking, impossible. I'm going to try and communicate to you something about the love of God for us, which is such a deep topic that any preacher in their right mind should quail before the prospect. But we depend on God. So here we go. In 1976, in my student days, shortly after the age of the dinosaurs, of course, I was involved for a month in a mission in southern France in the city of Bordeaux with Operation Mobilization. We gathered for orientation in Louvain and Belgium, and then we were assigned to small groups in which we would travel to our destination. We were provided with a, a leader and a mode of transport and a small amount of money that we could use for food and gas along the way. I remember our mode of transport vividly. It was a battered old Volkswagen van, much like this one, a van that had seen better days. Those better days were long gone, as indeed had the van's rear seats. Where those seats had been, there was now simply a cavernous space into which we were all joyfully deposited by the joyful people who were sending us off. Uh, a very hard floor, I remember. But what the van lacked in seating was more than made up for by the excitement of the travel. And this was not entirely down to the van. Our team leader was a cheerful, upbeat girl from New York who had never driven in Europe and had only the most rudimentary grasp of European driving conditions and European traffic law. Yes, it was a long and painful journey. Uh, the most interesting moment, maybe, was when our fearless leader attempted an illegal U-turn somewhere on the outskirts of Paris in the middle of the night. 
uh, we were alerted to this creative moment by being very rudely awakened from sleep and thrown from the back of the van to the front of the van as she braked in the face of the oncoming truck. Uh, the most distressing moment of the trip personally, though, for me, came the following morning when New York girl, as I refer to her, managed to reverse the van directly over my main travel bag, spewing the contents out onto France's native soil. So you will understand from this that I arrived in Bordeaux relieved to be alive, um, less adequately clothed than I had planned. <laughs> now I tell you this story which is amusing only with the benefit of long hindsight in order to emphasize something important about our Christian journey. It's really important to travel with the right kind of leader. <clears throat> Somebody who's competent to get you to your destination safely. Somebody who resists the temptation to make illegal U-turns in the middle of the night. Somebody who, not under any circumstances, will actually reverse over your baggage. Because, of course, we all have baggage. Successful travel requires the right kind of companion. And a destination worth the trouble. Uh, now, I'm not making any generalized comment on Bordeaux as a city. I'm sure there are many wonderful parts of Bordeaux that we never got to visit. But let me just say, the general point remains that the aggravation of travel is made up for when the destination is worthwhile. Now, this brings me circuitously to Psalm 23. Here we have a, a biblical text that is about a journey, our journey with God. It's a text about the love that God has for us, about the love, the God who loves us, not just at the beginning of the journey, and not just in the middle of the journey, but all the way to the end. It's a text about the character of the God who leads us, through life. It's a text about the nature of the destination toward which he leads us. It's a text about the certainty of getting there. And Psalm 23 speaks about these important, crucial realities using two leading metaphors. And it's these metaphors that I want to unpack for us all this morning. First of all, God who is a good shepherd, and secondly, God who is a generous host. So first of all, God who is the good shepherd. This is what verses one to four are about. The metaphor of shepherd is fairly commonly used in the Bible, you probably are aware of this, closely associated in the Old Testament with God's leading of Israel in the wilderness, with Israel's return from exile in Babylon later. Well, what does it mean though? What does a good shepherd do? A good shepherd makes sure that the sheep, first of all, eat the best food. He makes me lie down in green pastures, we are told. My very young grandson tells me that actually he makes us lie down in green pasta 
but that tells you more about my grandson's interest than about the biblical text. He makes me lie down in green pastures, grassy meadows in other words, as opposed to sparsely vegetated land. If you've been to the Holy Land, you'll know that quite a lot of it does not make for good sheep food. A lot of it's quite desert-like, truth be told. But the Good Shepherd manages to find green pastures even in the midst of all these challenges. He manages to find abundant, lush pastures, whether in the rainy season or the dry season, all the year round. And such a thing is not easy. It takes effort. It can be done with effort. So the real question, I suppose, is why does the Good Shepherd try so hard to do this difficult thing? Because the Good Shepherd doesn't just want his sheep to eat as they travel. He wants them to eat well. That's how much he cares. The average shepherd might not care. The, the hired hand that Jesus describes in John 10 who's only in the sheep business for the money, he might well not care. For him, it's not the sheep that are important. And indeed, I'm sure that those of you in businesses have all met employees like that in your time. Minimal effort, maximum sense of entitlement. So the hireling shepherd might not care about the sheep. Well, they're only sheep, he might say. I'm sure they'll manage on the scrub. Why should I make too much of a fuss? But the good shepherd cares. He makes us lie down in green pastures. God has our best interests at heart. And this same shepherd wants his sheep to drink really well too. He leads me beside quiet waters. Just as good food was difficult to find in that region in ancient times, so was water. In fact, any kind of ongoing existence there required a lot of human ingenuity. And so the courses of rivers were altered and the flow of springs improved and wells were dug. Rainwater from the wet months collected in deep reservoirs or cisterns for later use. It wasn't easy to find water back then even less easy to find water that was safe for sheep to drink because if you're a sheep who's looking to drink, you don't want to be sticking your head into a torrential river and finding yourself 800 meters downstream with your legs in the air and somewhat dead. You don't want turbulent water if you're a sheep. You don't want a raging flood you want quiet water. But a lot of the water supply back then was turbulent as it is now. Flash floods suddenly filling the wadis with raging streams likely to sweep away anything caught in their path. Lots of turbulent water. But the good shepherd leads his sheep beside quiet water, even though, again, it may take considerable effort to find such water. That's how much God cares. Not just any food and drink, but the best kind of sustenance on the journey through life. And so the picture we're building up here is of a generous person. Not a, a meager provider, 
not an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of a shepherd, not a grudging person or a petty person. The good shepherd loves the sheep and pours out blessing on the sheep. That's what we learn. And by providing for the sheep in this way, says the psalmist, God restores my soul, or perhaps better, restores my life, puts life back into us when it is ebbing away through lack of sustenance. We might well translate this also simply as he refreshes me. That's what the care of God achieves for the sheep who's a member of this particularly happy flock. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, what does it mean? Fundamentally, it means I shall not be in want. I shall lack nothing for the journey. It doesn't mean I'll get everything I want, but it does mean I shall receive everything I need. The good shepherd keeps the sheep alive. But more than that, we read, he guides the sheep. Some of our translations have, he guides me in paths of righteousness. Some of you will be aware of that translation. In other words, this is not an open-ended ramble through the countryside, this journey. The sheep are not left to the devices and desires of their own hearts. The sheep did not plan the itinerary, which is just as well, given the general foolishness of sheep and their famous capacity for getting lost and into danger. Uh, you will have noticed, perhaps, that sheep are not the brightest of God's creatures, not well endowed with common sense. They don't possess an especially good sense of direction. I came across a story a number of years ago, and don't ask me how, from a leading English language newspaper in the Gulf state of Qatar, 2009, on what was obviously a slow news day in the Persian Gulf. The headline, 400 sheep fall off a cliff in Turkey. That was the headline. And the story went on to describe how hundreds of sheep had followed one lead sheep off this cliff, plunging to their deaths while the shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep died, another 1,100 sheep followed them and survived because they bounced, essentially. <laughs> uh, sheep follow sheep. That's the point, right? Sheep follow sheep. They don't necessarily plan where they're going, and they certainly don't think much about direction. In Psalm 23, mercifully, the itinerary for the journey does not lie with the sheep. The itinerary lies with the shepherd. And the shepherd we're talking about here is not the least bit like those Turkish shepherds who neglected their flock while they were eating their own breakfasts. This shepherd is attentive, makes sure that the sheep stay on the right kind of paths. That's really what that phrase, paths of righteousness, means. The word righteousness for us modern Bible readers, has a, an obvious sense of moral religious connotation. Uh, 
So perhaps it's not the best translation choice here as applied to sheep, because sheep are neither righteous nor unrighteous, so far as I can tell. Goats are a different business, but sheep are simply sheep. And the point of verse three is really this, that there are good places for sheep and there are bad places for sheep, like cliff edges, for example. The good shepherd makes sure that his sheep do not stray off the right paths into dangerous places. And so the good shepherd doesn't take his sheep along any of the main traffic arteries of Paris, for example or attempt illegal U-turns with them therein. The good shepherd makes sure that his sheep stay on the right kind of path so that he can get them safely to the destination. This is what we learn about the journey we are on with God. Now, of course, you will, we will, all of us, in the course of that journey on the right path, pass through dark and dangerous places. That's the next thing we learn. Psalm 23 is not a naive psalm when it comes to human experience. If it were naive, it would be very difficult for us to regard it as truthful. But Psalm 23 is not naive. It knows about darkness and danger. It knows about evil and chaos. It knows about the sheep traveling through the valley of the shadow of death. Just take that slide there back one or two, please, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, forward again. Just, we got a little bit out of phase. I think we're good now. There's a, a slide of a dark valley next, I think, if you go to the, well, no, one more. That's a happy, there's, there you are. It's not particularly dark, I guess, but it's a valley. <laughs> The picture in the psalm is, is really of the darkest valley or ravine that you can imagine, a place where there might be threats lurking in the shadows. It's not just a picture of death, although it does include death, of course. The phrase, valley of the shadow of death, is just a particularly graphic way in Hebrew of expressing a superlative holy of holies, most holy place, king of kings, the greatest king. And so in this case, a place of deadly darkness. That's really what we're to think of here. Uh, my colleague uh, Eugene Peterson once translated this simply as Death Valley, a dangerous place for sheep. And the point of the psalm is that the good shepherd does not simply look after the sheep in the pleasant places, but he looks after the sheep in the unpleasant places where he himself leads them, crucially. Now notice this. There's no way to the destination in this journey with God that does not pass through dark places. There's no way of guessing to the destination without these moments in life. That's really what the whole book of Psalms tells us. Think of all those uh, traumatic Psalms of lament. It's what the book of Job tells us. It's what the entirety of the New Testament tells us. We have no way of getting to our destination with God without sometimes going through dark places. And frankly, anyone who tells you otherwise, and there are many who would, is simply not telling you the truth. Anyone who tells you 
that the Christian life is a pain-free life, a healthy, wealthy life with no darkness in it, well, that really is just a, a false prophet peddling a pernicious gospel, a wolf in sheep's clothing. The journey we are on to the city of God is a journey that must take us through dark places. But the important thing to notice about the psalm is that the good shepherd will walk with us through the dark places. You are with me, says the psalm. The good shepherd will not send the sheep ahead through the dark valley and skip around by some other more pleasant route. See you later. Good luck with the bears and the lions. The good shepherd will not leave us in dark places. As Paul puts it later in 2 Corinthians, God comforts us in all of our troubles. God comforts us in the troubles. He doesn't necessarily take the troubles away, but God is found in the midst of them. Why? Because the good shepherd has bound himself by name to the flock, we're told. His reputation, his good name as a shepherd, is bound up with success. It's a matter of honor to God that he will get us safely to the end of the journey. So this is really, and I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, this is really a wonderful companion to have for the journey through life. And this is why the psalmist says, I shall fear no evil. Notice, he doesn't say evil doesn't really exist. Evil exists all right, it's real, it's unavoidable, but we need not fear it. Why? Well, because basically the good shepherd is well armed. That's why. He has a rod, which is not a very great translation. It makes me think of a stair rod or a fishing rod or something, and you're not gonna do much damage with either of those. We really have to think of a, a really mighty cudgel. That's a, that's a better word. The kind of thing people used, David used, to fight off the bears and the lions. And he also has a staff, which is a long stick used for keeping the sheep in line. So one way or another, the shepherd is well able to get the sheep through the nasty places of life. Just go back one slide, because I want people to dwell on the size of that cudgel. God is able to defend us. God is willing to do it. Therefore, the perfect companion for the journey. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, of course they would. And so this is a picture of the journey. What about the end of the journey? Well, that's where verses five and six take us next. And they tell us the end of the journey makes the journey well worth the trouble. The imagery changes now from God as the good shepherd to God as the generous host, welcoming us into his home. Here, the pilgrim, you and I, we encounter a wonderful risk-taking host. We encounter somebody who welcomes us into his home, 
even though we are not highly regarded by others, we're hated perhaps by others, but God welcomes us in any way in the very presence of our enemies. He doesn't care. It's a very warm welcome, symbolized by the anointing with oil. You anoint my head with oil, olive oil often appears in scripture as a symbol of great wealth and blessing and luxury, which is why it's used to anoint kings and priests. So think about the symbolism here. Who are we to God? We are people of that character, that nature. You anoint my head with oil. Very, very warm welcome. And of course, there's a fantastic banquet organized. God sets out a feast for the pilgrim, an abundant feast, cup overflowing with wine, we're told, another luxury item in the ancient world, and lots of it to be found here. So this is a very festive occasion. We may be despised in the outside world, but here in the house of God, we are honored and we are welcomed and we enjoy extravagant hospitality. Not grudging hospitality, not mean-spirited hospitality. Well, welcome here, you made it, I guess, so I suppose I'll have to let you in, here's a sandwich. <laughs> no, that's, that's not what we're being told. Extravagant hospitality. It's not at all like some of those jokes that we've heard about heaven. They always involve St. Peter. Do you know these jokes? You show up at the pearly gates. They're always closed. You need to get past St. Peter somehow to get in. So there's a closed gate, there's a gatekeeper, and there's always an exam of some kind. And then maybe you'll be allowed in. But that's not how it is at all for the sheep who belong to Jesus. Here's how it is. The city gate is open. Jesus himself is the gate. We read that in John chapter 10. There's not a bureaucrat or a clipboard in sight. There's not even any apostle in sight. They're all long gone. They've all moved further up and further in. Sometimes people say to me, I'm looking forward to the next stage of life because I have a few questions for the Apostle Paul I'd like answered, which seems to me to express very limited ambition, frankly. But <laughs> my, my point is this, you won't find him. He's not interested, he's gone. He's got his fly rod and he's up in the mountains somewhere. And you'll, never, you'll never track him down. The road leads through the gate to a restaurant and the door to the restaurant is open and you're greeted very warmly, good evening, do allow me to take your coat, what would you like as a starter? And by the way, while you're waiting, here is a very, very large goblet of wine. That is the end of the journey in Psalm 23. It's not an exam, it's a banquet. This is what life with God is like. This is, remember, this is, the, this is speaking about reality. These metaphors are speaking about reality. This is what life with God is like. It's about generous provision. It's about wonderful guidance. It's about safety, even in dark places. And in the end, it's all about an extravagant feast, an endlessly extravagant 
feast. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, this is not a temporary joy before a crushing disappointment. Some of us, I'm afraid, are wired to expect that that's how life will be because that's what we've known before. Temporary joy followed by crushing disappointment. All sorts of reasons for that. But that deep conviction that some of us have is entirely misleading and wrong. That's not how it is. This is what I call following C.S. Lewis, puddle glum spirituality. Can we have that slide of puddle glum? There we go, thank you so much. But in Psalm 23, it's not a temporary joy before a crushing disappointment. It is the surprise of a joy that has no end. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, says the psalm. God will always show us steadfast love. Why? Because God is steadfast love. That's who God is. And to be honest, the verb follow is too weak. We should translate this line, surely goodness and steadfast love will pursue us. The Hebrew verb here is used elsewhere in scripture of animals pursuing their prey. It's very active in other words. Surely goodness and steadfast love will hunt me down. Surely goodness and steadfast love will breathe down my neck. Surely goodness and steadfast love will remain forever poised just around my jugular vein. That's more the sense of it. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see the confidence, the, the tremendous confidence that David has in the goodness of God. And he did not have an easy life, right? This is not just because he's protected and privileged and all that kind of stuff. But out of the midst of his very life, he's able to say with tremendous confidence, this is who God is. Confident that God wants the best for him. Confident that God is always present with him as a guide, even when it seems he's not. Confident that even in darkness and pain, God is walking actively with him through the valley. Confident that the eventual outcome is a warm welcome from somebody who is pursuing him. Sometimes we are not so confident, are we? Not quite so sure as we journey toward the city of light that goodness and love are so closely pursuing us. Our tendency perhaps is to think that if they're following us at all, they're doing so at a distance, some way behind. We're always looking back nervously to see whether they've got lost somewhere or have dodged behind a large rock for a cigarette. But the psalmist enjoys, encourages us rather, in a very different direction. God is a good shepherd. God is a good host. It's no surprise that he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who would not? Who would not wish to dwell in a place where we are so loved and honored, cared and provided for? Who would not want to live in a place where there is this good person pursuing us endlessly with grace and love? 
God so loves each one of us all the way to the end. And in the New Testament, of course, we see the fullness of this love on display in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who picks up all of these threads that we're talking about here and weaves them into a wonderful tapestry. Jesus, who saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, who tells his disciples to go out and preach to the lost sheep, who tells a story about a lost sheep to explain his mission, and who tells us, I am the good shepherd. Jesus, who associates with sinners and eats and drinks with them in the midst of their enemies and his enemies, who speaks of a great banquet at the end of time to which everyone who loves God will be welcome from east and west. Jesus, who tells the parable of the prodigal son involving a banquet in celebration of a lost son who comes home. And amazingly, that parable of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel closely follows the parable of the lost sheep. Luke saw the connection. I think he was reading Psalm 23 when he decided how to put that chapter of Luke's gospel together. Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus, the generous host. And both images, of course, turn up in Revelation chapter seven, where we have that wonderful paradox, the paradox of the Lamb of God who is also the shepherd ensuring that his people never again hunger or thirst. A great multitude at the end of time standing before the throne of God, and you remember the text perhaps, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God loves us in Christ all the way to the end. Amen. Now receive this benediction. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace and in the love of God.